the electric prunes for Vox, bringing you the exciting new sound of the Vox wah-wah pedal. Don't you know I'm loco? Don't you know I'm loco? Every sound takes you deeper and deeper. Nothing can disturb you. Don't you know I'm loco? Don't you know I'm loco? And it's cool. <laughs> I'm in a castle. Every time I pick up a paper, I always read bad news. <laughs> I love that track. Don't you know I'm loco? Don't you know I'm loco? Don't you know I'm loco? That's Kid Loco, and the track is Don't You Know I'm Loco. I think Kid Loco must be a DJ or something. I don't know how where it all came from but i've got like five or six tracks from kid loco uh which incorporate uh other musicians obviously so he must be some sort of a dj <clears throat> if you're listening kid loco i dig your stuff don't know who you are don't know what your stuff is all about but i dig it i'm gonna play another song by him later or, uh, an actual song not a little thrown together pastiche like what i just played for you um, this episode is with my buddy Eric Berkowitz. Eric is an awesome dude. He's um, he's a, he's an interesting character because Eric is is one of these guys. Like he went to law school. Uh, he's a, a lawyer. He's a journalist. He's written three books now. We're going to be talking about his third book. Um, he uh, practiced media, intellectual property, and business litigation in Los Angeles. Probably made a shit ton of money, too. He's got a really nice house in San Francisco. Uh, but he bailed. And now he writes. And he just sort of follows his intellect where it leads him. And it tends to lead him into areas that are... Uh, slightly forbidden, slightly taboo. His first uh, book is called Sex and Punishment, 4,000 Years of Judging Desire. And then he wrote a book called The Boundaries of Desire, A Century of Bad Laws, Good Sex, and Changing Identities. Now you can just tell by these uh, titles, the sort of the nexus of of the titillating and the forbidden is where Eric tends to land. His book that is out today which uh, I can highly recommend I, I blurbed it I think I'm on the back cover or one of the pages inside the front cover it's called Dangerous Ideas A Brief History of Censorship in the West from the Ancients to Fake News really interesting stuff all about you know trying to control ideas control expression control what we think uh, fascinating stuff and extremely relevant to where we are today, where we're, we've got the right wing uh, saying, you know, you have no right to all sorts of artistic expression uh, and the government can't be involved. There's no funding of the arts. They're constantly trying to cut funding to any of the arts, especially any arts that dare to talk about things like sexuality or women's rights or or historic structural racism and then you've got people on the far left telling us you can't use this word you can't use that word um you know you need to refer to people of color but you can't say colored people 
you know, trans people, if you say a woman born a woman is different in some physiological sense from a trans woman, then you're a transphobic and you need to be canceled and eliminated from the discussion. I mean, the censorship is coming from everywhere. It seems like it's the power trip du jour. Um, and uh, everybody's trying to tell us what we can say, what we can think, what's acceptable language, who is an accept acceptable person to converse with. Um, and as you know, I am like, that's one of the few hard lines that I will draw is uh, on people who are trying to tell me what is acceptable to think, acceptable to say. Uh, who is an acceptable person to converse with. I just won't have it. And uh, I'm sorry if I sometimes come across as a shithead uh, in, in my vehemence on that point. Um, but I feel like it's fundamental to any society worth living in that the society needs to be founded on the principle that you can say things uh, that offend people, that make people uncomfortable, and you will be judged on your intention. You will be judged on the quality of your character, not on the language you choose to use. And, and we see it all the time. Come on, how many, you know, just take the word bitch, for example, right? You can use the word bitch to hurt someone. You can use the word bitch as in an endearing way. It can be a verb. It can be a noun. Uh, you know, don't be a little bitch. You can say that to a man. You can say that to a woman. I mean, I know women who get off on being your bitch, right? It's like there's so many different reflections that come off every word, like a cut diamond turning in the light. There's no way you can eliminate ideas by eliminating words. It doesn't work that way. The ideas pre-exist the word. The ideas outlive the word. You can eliminate the words. You can force all white people to say N-word when everyone knows what N-word refers to. Uh, it doesn't eliminate racism. It doesn't even begin to eliminate racism. And I would argue that in fact, it either, I almost said it retards, is what I was going to say. I was going to say it retards the progress in eliminating racism. But then I realized like, oh, wait, I'm not allowed to say the word retard, even though it's a verb meaning to slow down, because now that's a forbidden word. It's just absurd. Um you know this, and and it's especially absurd, or especially upsetting or annoying to me because I agree with the intention. I agree that we should not hurt one another. I agree that we should be kind and compassionate and gentle with each other. But 
we don't get there by controlling language. We get there by exploring language. You know, it's like, it, it sort of lines up with so many other things in life. Like, you know, you don't eliminate teenage pregnancy by telling teenagers they can't say the word sex or by telling their teachers they can't use the word sex. They can't talk about sex. They can't. That's a forbidden subject. That doesn't eliminate teenage pregnancy. It doesn't eliminate people getting sexually transmitted diseases, right? The way you reduce those things is by open discussion of sexuality with teenagers, with children, not by hiding it, not by making it a forbidden subject. I would think that's obvious by now. I would think we all know that. But in America, we don't know that. In America, more than half the states still have, uh, you know, like a zero tolerance towards sex ed, uh, you know, uh, chastity only, right? Virginity is the only possible option. Yeah, come on now. Do we really have to pretend that that's even a legitimate approach to this issue? It's, it's absurd. And yet, that's what we're supposed to do. We're, we are supposed to believe that by eliminating language, by eliminating conversations that may make some people uncomfortable, we're eliminating the true source of the problem. And of course, we are not. That makes as much sense as saying, you know, uh, let's stop talking about global warming and it'll go away. Some people seem to believe that, including people in government. It doesn't work. I don't know why we have to keep banging our heads against that wall, but we do. Anyway, this is my conversation with Eric Berkowitz. He's a very cool guy, very smart guy, and has a lot of interesting things to say about these issues He's thought about them a lot more than I have. Um, I hope you enjoy this conversation. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider supporting it uh, through my website, thatchrisryan.com or tangentiallyspeaking.com. Uh, if you don't have cash, but you do spend money at Amazon occasionally, you can use the Amazon affiliate link there, and that will throw a few percentages, a few percentages of what you spend at Amazon back towards supporting the podcast which I appreciate ever so much. Um, you can also support the podcast just by telling your friends about it, leaving a good review uh, or whatever, or just thinking kind thoughts, sending good karma into the universe. Ultimately, that's all the support anyone can ask for or anyone deserves. Thank you again for listening. I'm going to play you out with uh, a little bit of my soul by the mysterious Kid Loco. Catch you soon. Forget. I know your hips, I know your zips, 
your lips And everything is great But what I need, baby Is a little bit of your soul But you're too cold, baby And your blood don't flow What I need, baby Is a little bit of your soul But you're too cold, baby And your blood don't flow Well, you taught me a few tricks in bed I'm here with Eric Berkowitz. Uh, what, what do I call you? Is it? It's not Doctor Berkowitz. You're a lawyer. Do I call you Mister Berkowitz Esquire or something? What is the proper terminology? Herr Herr Berkowitz, perhaps. No, just call call me Eric. <laughs> Herr Doctor Berkowitz. Yes, yes, the good doctor. Um, Eric, welcome, will do. welcome. Thanks it's, for having uh, me. It's good to talk to you. You write books. Uh, too fast for me to keep up with you. What What is up? Are you trying to take over the world, make me look bad? What, what's your motivation here? This is like your third book in 10 years. 
It's my third book in about eight years. Yeah, you know, eight I, years. I wasn't really intending on chugging out another one here, but uh, the editor in the UK called me and uh, some two or three years ago and said, I've got this idea, you know, censorship, history, you, let's do it. And oh. I sort of changed my life around a bit. So I went on this journey and um, was actually given... I probably would have taken years, but the American publisher put me on a very short string and said, we need this. I forgot what the time frame was, you know, 16, 18 months, some time that sounds like a long time, except for when you're doing it. And uh, so I had to turn the, turn the thing around pretty quickly, which was kind of a blessing in the end, because these things, as you know, can go on forever and ever. And you find yeah. something new and then something else happens and then, you know. Yeah, well, especially, you know, I guess you were wrapping it up relatively recently because, I mean, I was just reading in the afterword, you're talking about Trump losing the election and uh, some of the challenges to free speech that were coming up both against him and then from his supporters in terms of him getting kicked off social media. And, uh, and you said something about like, you know, I just had to pick an arbitrary point to stop taking in new information because this is such a living, growing topic that you're working with here. Actually, this is probably the first lie that you're going to catch me in uh, in this uh, interview because... <laughs> I did say that there was an arbitrary date, but then I kept on going, driving the, uh, uh, driving yeah. the publishers fully batshit with my emails at three in the morning saying, stop everything. We've got to put this in. We've got to put this in. Yeah. It's an interesting book. This is a book about the history of censorship. And so it starts with the formation of language, and then it keeps on with me driving my editors nuts with, you know, anti-trans speech in the UK and, uh, and this. So yeah, it's an electric subject and it's been an electric subject ever since one person sought to shut another person up, you know? Yeah. And so, um, I, I, we thought the book would be timely when we cooked this up. We didn't think it would quite be this timely. Yeah. Yeah. So you said, okay, censorship is the subject of the book. The book's called Dangerous Ideas, uh, a phrase that I really like. I, one of the first um, conferences that I was invited to speak at when Sexaton came out was the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. Really? How cool. Yeah. In, uh, in Sydney, Australia. It was at the uh, Sydney Opera House. That famous, beautiful building there on the water. The sailboat, yeah. Um, and it was really interesting because it, it was basically a TED-type thing, you know? Lots of people from around the world. Uh, I was one of the, you know, least famous people by a long shot. Um, who was there? That, that, that Eastern European philosopher that everybody loves, Slovash Milos or something like that. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm talking about? I, he, he was... Czesław Milos? Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. But anyway, the, the thing I remember about you it... You met him? Did you hang out with him? I didn't hang out with him. I, mm. You know, we were probably standing next to each other on a buffet at some point. But, a uh, brush with greatness, yeah. <laughs> anyway, no, I listened to his talk and I thought it was nonsense. I couldn't, I couldn't... It just seemed like it was designed to provoke, but not enlighten in the least. Mm. But anyway, what, what I was going to say about that was... Uh, 
you know, how in the United States, given the subject matter of sex at dawn, you know, mating, sex, bodies, you know, it provokes a lot of this sort of impulse to filter, censor, avoid this topic, avoid that topic. And so I was accustomed to uh, asking before I did an interview or or went out on stage, like, hey, what words should I avoid? Are there certain topics you want me to stay away from? And I asked them that there. And of course, in TED, they wanted me to stay away from basically everything. I, I don't know how they wanted me to talk about sex at TED. Um, but at the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, I'll never forget, I was backstage and I said, I was about to go out. I said, you know, what kind of language should I use? Is there anything you want me to avoid? And the producer just said, no, man, go out there. Say whatever the fuck you want. We want people to be provoked. We want people to go home and talk about this. It doesn't matter if they love it or hate it. We want people to talk about it. I thought, man, there that is such a difference in you know American culture and Australian culture and yet both sort of come out of a Puritan background so I wonder historically speaking I know this wasn't specifically the subject of the book but that's cool I mean you've got these historical antecedents but still cultures take very different roots you know would you say for example that there's a harm reduction approach to censorship and a banish approach, just as there is to drug use or prostitution or other behaviors? Okay, so there was so much in what you were just saying. <laughs> no, I'm just going to go to no, the bathroom no. while you answer that. No, 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 no. <laughs> Stop me if I go on too, too long. But Not the, at all, the, never. The first thing, oh, please. The first thing is I'm thinking about Australia. And Australia, we would, I guess, hold up as one of the free speech, one of the places in the world where there's more speech allowed than others. But I just, in the book, talked about, you know, everyone has their limits, every, harm reduction. Australia put, the highest court in Australia put a student newspaper out of business. And in fact, I think charged the editors because they published this humorous article about if you're a student and you're poor, Here's how you can shoplift safely to to uh, you know fence some shit and get some food. Uh uh-uh. uh, we have free speech in Australia, but not when you encourage petty crime, and mm. and that was just astounding to me. But uh, you know, so everyone draws their limits. Australia will allow Christopher Ryan to get up and say whatever the fuck he wants and provoke people because I think that makes a very very good event. But at the same time, we all find our own limits. And at the same time, also, I mean, as soon as printing was invented, printers were telling their authors, write what's forbidden, write what is forbidden. This is this works. This is sales. This is good. And so there was instantly with every new law, there is a new black market available. In fact, the French stopped burning books publicly because it, they found that it drove the sales of forbidden books too much Mm. you know and and so i mean i know you fairly well you know me fairly well when we see that something is banned we go oh interesting so there's always been this forbidden fruit quality and censorship has always sort of played with its opposite but with harm reduction just getting to your to your real question it's really interesting because censorship i mean harm to whom harm 
by what, mm. harm prevented by whom. Okay, so let's think of various kinds of harms. One, you hurt my feelings. I said you're ugly. I said you're impotent. I said you're you're as a leader, you're 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 weak and corrupt. Another is you know harm to truth. Is truth a good thing? You know, uh, is the existence of truth something that we want, or is the existence of falsehood something that we don't? Is there something good about falsehoods? Is there something bad about truth? And then who the hell is making the call in the first place? Right. And that's the thing that I come back over and over and over again. We're gonna, we, we, we'll probably today be talking about hate speech and hard feelings and all that other yeah. stuff and, and disinformation. These are bad things. But at the same time, what's often worse is the solution. And so people have to make a, make a distinction between... You could hate the speech, but also hate the solution. If you want to protect the speech, that doesn't mean that you want to protect the bad thing that's being said. For example, right. I was just looking at a at a article, and in fact, I wrote about it in the UK edition of this piece, in which this ex-cop in the UK tweeted some really nasty anti-trans shit. Uh, he didn't. There's a whole debate about increased protections for trans people in the UK and it's roiling and this one guy tweeted out this shit saying I'm I was born a fish but I'm inclined towards this don't miss species me some stupid joke well the cop showed up to his house no to his work and told him check your thinking this actually happened in the UK about a year and a half ago told him check your thinking we're not booking this as a hate incident yet, but you're on our list. Everyone at work notices the cops show up. So that turned into a whole cause celeb. In fact, you know, and the judge kind of pulled back on that. But in preventing genuine harm to trans people, I mean, we can accept that sometimes hate speech really does silence people. It harms them. It makes them feel less of a citizen. Uh, do we want the police showing up at people's houses telling you to check your speech? Well, these things all or, exist. No, excuse me, check your thinking. Uh, even uh, even more just, interesting, check yeah. your thinking. Yeah. I remember I reading... check my thinking all day long and I don't particularly <laughs> like it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of the uh, one of the cases I think about sometimes is uh, I don't remember the guy's name, but he was uh I think 18, 19 years old or something. And um, he was right. He had a fetish about uh, sex with, you know, 11 or 12 year old girls. And he had never done anything. He had never touched anyone inappropriately. He had no criminal record, you know, nothing. Um, but he wrote about these fantasies in his diary. And his mother found the diary and called the police. And then this guy got convicted of a sex crime. And I thought, how is it possible? He Check didn't thinking. do anything, right? It's just his thinking. It's a thought crime. When a lot of psychiatrists would tell you that he, if he has these inclinations, perhaps writing them out 
is a good way of playing it out rather than going out and finding someone. Having the thought and doing the action. Exactly. Profound difference. Now, Chris, this is why I dig talking to you so much because you, you get to it. There's a difference between words and action. And in American law, we like to make that distinction between words and action. Words, okay, action, bad. But it doesn't, it doesn't always work like, like that because words are electric. Words, words are sometimes themselves action. And so we like to make, you know, sometimes words are, are, I mean, from the beginning, we've seen words as having their own power quite apart from what they've signified. So this, this guy, this unfortunate character who harbors fantasies, all right, they're not savory, but I think if you woke most of us up in the middle of the night and, uh, and had us speak without any inhibitors, we're going to say <laughs> some shit that we don't want made public, okay? Two o'clock so, in the afternoon, man. Forget uh, <laughs> <laughs> the middle of the night. But also, you wake like, us what, up, you know. what about Steven Spielberg, right? I mean, he, he makes movies that could be argued to celebrate murder. Right. Indiana Jones, that guy's shooting everybody, celebrates colonialism, celebrates the plundering of, you know, foreign lands for their artifacts. All sorts of crimes, international and domestic, are being committed and committed with, you know, a bravado and a style and certainly being celebrated. So how is he not guilty of something when this kid writing in his journal privately, not trying to affect anyone else's behavior, not trying to affect the public perception of anything, um, yeah. Are, well, you said some... I can I can respond to that. Yeah, I please, mean, please. Because in the context that Indiana Jones was put out, no one really felt that that was such a bad thing that he was evoking old movies, etc. But sex with kids these years, these decades, is so radioactive, so radioactive that that we can't even permit someone to write something in this journal. I mean, there was a case a few centuries ago where this guy, Algernon Sidney, was put on trial for treason in England, and he lost. And I, I believe he was actually executed because he had written something which no one ever saw called Discourses Versus Government. This is exactly on the same tip that you were just talking about. It, is, it was about... Um, that when a leader, a king, doesn't serve the people in the way the people should be served, re revolution is an appropriate thing. Sidney, who was a prominent character, tells the judge, wait a minute, I, this, they came in and pulled this out of my desk. I mean, I didn't even circulate this. This isn't treasonous. And the judge says, don't even think it. The birds will carry your thoughts far away. And he was convicted. <laughs> And that book became what is called textbook to revolution. Like Jefferson knew the book, Washington knew the book, yeah. they all knew the book. So words and action, they're very different, you know? Well, but that brings also me the same. That brings me to two things I wanted to ask you about. One sure. is the sort of inherent contradiction of the United States being founded upon revolution against what was considered to be incompetent, unfair, unrepresentative governance, mm -hmm. right? So it's built right into the founding of this country. And yet uh, there are still these forces that would seek to squelch that kind of talk now. 
um, you know, Abby oh, yeah. Hoffman. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> don't get me started on this fucking subject. <laughs> uh, you know, I want to we get were, you started. We broke off from England uh, in the same way that a kid that hates his father still acts like his father. You know, you <laughs> that's know? a great point. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. so we broke off from England, but our legal tradition is. And, you know, the law isn't just words on paper. They reflect the zeitgeist. They reflect who we are. Mm. And, I mean, imperfectly, slowly, sometimes it's a, there's shit on the mirror, but they do reflect who we are. So we pretty much took English law, you know, entirely. And, and the notion of, I'm going to stick with the subject of dissent, because that's the thing that really animates me more than anything. It's political dissent. Um, yeah, the American Revolution was a colossal act of political dissent, but at the same time, we didn't really absorb that. When they were writing the Constitution, there was never any discussion of a guarantee of freedom of speech until the very, very end of the convention. You know, everyone's sweltering, they're in Philadelphia, it's a long, hot time, the guys are sick of each other, they all stink. And, and uh, I think his name was Charles Pinckney brought up, like, shouldn't we have a guarantee of freedom of speech? And I said, no. Why? Because the federal government doesn't have the power anyway. So why should we say that they can't do something that, that they already can't do, et cetera, et cetera. And so the First Amendment was only passed, you know, a couple years after, you know, in 1791. And Benjamin Franklin himself said none of us had any real clear idea what it meant. They just sort of said it. It was in some state constitutions. But then just to show how unformed the whole thing was, seven years later, 1798, the John Adams faction and the Thomas Jefferson faction, the Republicans, the Federalists are at it. And uh, we, have, we, we pass a sedition law that is that outlaws almost all dissent. It was all, I mean, I'm telling you, it was extreme. And uh, to, the, to the point where John Adams was in New Jersey and there was a 21-gun salute and the town drunk of Newark uh, voices, you know what, I hope that cannibal lands in Adams' ass. That's what he said. Throw it in jail. Just for the idea that he hated the president so much. So there, there were lots of people put in jail for dissent. And um, we've had a real hard time with that, I think, Throughout our history, we have this ideal of free speech, which has certainly grown since the 1790s, although with fits and starts, definitely, uh, matched up against the basic human nature of, I can't stand hearing things that upset me. I can't stand hearing, you know, I, I don't want speech that counters what I believed to be the case or the direction that I want to go in. And that's both on an individual level and on an institutional level. So the same thing happened during World War I. We outlawed the German language. <laughs> there were thousands of people thrown in jail. A lot of them happened to be Jewish or communist or pacifist for speaking out against the draft. Uh, extreme shit went down. And then we recovered from that. And then with the communist waves in the 50s, we pulled back. Then we recovered again. But there was a lot of progress made. And so where, where, where are we? America 
you know, has these ideals, they go against, I think, to some extent, our nature, our nature as people and as institutions being very touchy and scared. There's fear in words. There's assault in words. There's, there's, there's disturbance. It hurts to hear things you don't believe in. This is what I'm finding. It just hurts. And it takes, you know, there was, Thur there was Thurgood Marshall, the great civil rights leader, who actually voted in favor of acquitting. This is one of the key First Amendment cases ever. It's called Brandenburg. There was a Klan rally in the 50s. And the leader, Brandenburg, was calling for death of Jews and blacks. And Marshall said, well, unless people were get, you know, had spears in their hands and were, and were about to kill someone, I think his speech was protected. And that's the standard that we live in. A guy like Marshall... They don't come along often. They devolve into guys like Trump <laughs> and into guys like uh, Clarence Thomas, whose touchiness yeah. is, 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 is massive. So, yeah. you know, I can look at one piece of progress, which is that, you know, people who spoke out against the draft during World War I were thrown in jail. And then in the 1970s, you know, this guy named Paul Cohen walked in the L.A. courthouse with the jacket saying, fuck the draft. And he was arrested for disturbing the peace. And that went to the Supreme Court. And they said, good for you. One, one man's vulgarity is another man's lyric. So we've made progress. Mm. You, uh, in your book, you quote George Orwell saying, if liberty means anything, it means the right to tell people what they do not want to hear. I thought that Basic was really shit. interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, and George Orwell knew something about oppression and... Uh, you know, restriction of speech. Uh, you said earlier, you, you were talking about words um, sometimes being action. What's an example of that? Because if we distinguish like Thurgood Marshall did and said, look, words are words, unless you've got a spear in your hand and you're about to, you know, attack someone, those words are protected. So it seems that he's making a distinction between action and language um, yes yeah i mean and he was a thoughtful guy <laughs> and he realized that while that that clansman was speaking out against people like himself that could easily be turned against it well i mean one thing we were talking about pornography there's a there's a very strong belief um Catherine mckinnon being i think one of the main one of the main proponents of it is that Pornography doesn't just depict what she sees as rape or sexual assault. It is that. There's, it's, yeah. there, there's, it's, it's not that it signifies anything. It is that. No less than, than what it de depicts. And she made some progress, she and her confederates, in outlawing por pornography as a sexual assault in and of itself. And I mean, I think that's a very, you know, and I've got, I mean, there's just, there's a ton of examples where dissident speech or obscene speech or even images are seen themselves as poison. I mean, we reaching back the first anti-porn law in England, it was described as, you know, sexual depictions were described as poison, as actual a toxin in the streets that needed to be clean, cleaned up. 
So, you know, we can go back even further in history where words themselves are, are seen as having their own, let's just call it agency, you know? Is there that Andrea Dworkin, uh, Catherine McKinnon pivot in the early 80s? Um, I remember reading a book called Woman Hating, uh, arguing that all men were essentially rapists, just sort of waiting for their opportunity. Uh, well, that and, intercourse itself is a form of rape. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Right. Um, yeah, I, I was kind of a feminist um you know, wallowing in a lot of uh, shame and guilt for being a white ruling class cisgendered male uh, in those days. But even 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 from that perspective, that book was like, are you fucking kidding me? Come on now. <laughs> and it, it really sort of triggered my uh, walking away from a lot of those ways of thinking. Looking back on it 40 years later, Jesus, 40 fucking years later, man. <sighs> Don't even Is that something? <laughs> um, I was three four years ago. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I could be your daddy. Yeah. Uh, looking back on it, it seems like a pivotal intellectual moment where uh, this idea that, uh, and this is why I asked you, like, in in what cases are words action? Because I stick to the notion that words are words and actions are actions. You know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Like, I mm-hmm. I refuse to take that step into um, a, a believing that words should be restricted because uh, they can cause discomfort to other people. Um, and that gets me in hot water because I'm kind of an absolutist on that. I, I think if a word hurts you, that's... That's within you. That's your interpretation of the word. The intent with which the word is used is very important. And, you know, if if you take it as an insult, you're welcome to insult me back. But I do believe that the, the realm of language and the realm of physical behavior are two different realms. And I, I totally agree. You agree. Okay. <laughs> uh, but, but I, but I want to go further into it because you and I can sit here chatting and agreeing with one another and buying each other beers and you know so what the i want to step back a little bit um i think we're going to start to get into now hate speech and insults and all that because that's an electric subject now on right well that's where i'm going the whole me too movement seems to have come you know, I'm I'm wondering, is there a historical context for this? Because it seems like historically censorship has been about politics, don't insult the authority, religion, don't assault the religious authority, and sex. And all the class questions woven through that, which are thick. And, right. and sex. You know, let's just look at where we diverted from Europe to some extent, because we really have... Um, and, you know, World War II occurred and Europe got a dose of hatred like the Americans haven't seen. OK, there, there was, you know, I don't need to tell, to tell you. And the Europe that was put together out of the scraps, uh, I mean, out of the wreckage of World War II was an extremely different thing. America became, I mean, this is just me pontificating, but America became this ultra cocky, dominant 
consciousness that we we won because we're morally correct, because we've got the balls, we've got the money, we've got the weapons, we can take a little bit more. So after World War II, we developed this, you know, as I said, fuck the draft. We developed a very strong protection for dissent. And we really moved away from any protection of human feelings. I mean, the American response to hate speech is, oh, well, <laughs> I mean, that's the American legal response. The American popular feeling right now is that hate speech should be illegal. More than half people, of people feel that. But there was even, um, in 1949, there was this case in which there was this priest spouting all this anti-Semitic shit. And the Supreme Court said, you know what? The, the First Amendment's highest purpose is served when it causes hurt. Mm-hmm. That's that's the inflection point. That's when we know we're really guarding speech. That's intense. Europe walks away and says, you know, something went very, very wrong here. And we have to protect it. So the German Constitution puts human dignity above everything. Every single right comes down from that, including speech. So they protect speech. There's long statements about protecting speech. But if it harms dignity, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. And so the entire sweep of the European approach is that we need to guard words in a, in, to the United States, to us, at least legally, words are ideas and ideas are sacred. To the Europeans, words themselves can be discrimination. Words themselves can hurt. So in Germany, I mean, on the same day, that the Charlottesville rally was happening with all these motherfuckers walking around with tiki torches saying Jews will not replace us. And they were protected. Within a week, there were two Chinese tourists in front of the Reichstag in Berlin who raised the Nazi salute and they were arrested. You don't raise the Nazi salute in Germany. Even if you're two fucking Chinese tourists who have no effect on anything, <laughs> who yeah. are just dipshits, you know, that, so the idea, the idea for the German police of seeing that occur, it's not going to happen. And even this one guy posted something on Facebook, I think it was using the swastika in a picture of Himmler. Uh, He posted it to complain at what he thought were bad actions against immigrants. And the just to like make an analogy and he was arrested. Why? Because you can't even use a swastika as an eye-catching device is where they use. Even if you're not proponing, even if you're not proponing is that a word, promoting Nazism, just the symbol. So, so to the Europeans, are they right? I don't know. I mean, there was this philosopher, and I guess this is what it comes down to. Karl Popper wrote in 45 that tolerance breeds intolerance. Mm, if, we, yeah. if we over-tolerate, then the intolerant will win. America hasn't really grasped it. We're in much more of a crisis over it now than the Europeans. All the European movement against hate speech online, et cetera, is sort of of a piece. This is just a progression for who they are. The Americans were sort of at war with ourselves psychologically. So on a fundamental level, did you conclude when you were researching this book that the, um, the, the connection between language and action that is 
you know, the assumed connection, which lies at the heart of an impulse toward censorship, right? Control speech, therefore you will control behavior. That's what underlies these European hate speech laws that you're talking about. We need to even avoid- Even when they know it's futile. <laughs> What's that? I said, even when they know it's futile. Sometimes well, you can't even, they can't even exist in the same country with an idea, even knowing that it doesn't cause action. That's the odd part. But anyway, keep on going. Yeah, Sorry well, I, I'm just wondering, like, you know, experimentally, because everyone argues about whether porn encourages rape, let's say. It doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the experimental evidence that I've seen is that as porn uh, became available in certain Eastern European countries, for example, as the Internet spread, cases of rape dropped dramatically. So potential rapists were sitting at home jerking off instead of going out and raping someone. Right. Which mm -hmm. gets back to what you were talking about earlier. Evidence that seems to show that uh, entertaining fantasies take some of the power out of them as opposed to suppressing them, uh, which empowers them. Um, and you actually say in your book, the elimination of harmful rhetoric protects the well-being of some in the short term, but there's no evidence that it eliminates the darkness behind the words. Absolutely. Right. So, Absolutely. so we control the speech, but we're not certainly not reducing the power of the impulse, and we may, in fact, be empowering it. I mean, this is interesting. We can shift to the Internet slightly because that's, that's where the action is, and that's where American and European ethos has really, you know, collided. The control of speech does not control action i mean there was if you were just talking about the afterward to the book there's there's been a spike in anti-semitic hate crimes there's been a i mean with the heightened immigration into europe there's been all of these miserable actions against immigrants despite what these laws are you know supposed to be doing so i don't think that the experiment of suppressing hate speech has worked <laughs> okay that's not to say that i think that the impulse behind it is wrong okay i understand where the germans and the french are coming from i'm not saying that you're crazy you're idiots but it seems to be that in the face of an increased amount of hatred we just want to suppress speech that much more rather than really trying to get to the core of where the hatred comes from in the first place. We're sort of going to the, to the result rather than the cause. Well, that's why it, I mentioned harm reduction earlier, mm -hmm. right? Like we, we tried that forever with drugs. Uh, you know, we've tried it. We're doing it now with um, pedophilia, right? If, if, uh, uh, if someone says to a therapist that they have these uh, impulses towards sex with children, the therapist legally has to turn them in, has to call the police. Uh, and there is no way then for someone with these impulses to, to ask for help in controlling them. I mean, it's a counterproductive approach that we have to sexual impulses, to drug use, uh, you know, to so many, to prostitution. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's, uh, it's, what, you know, what about the court jester? Is that a real thing? Were there really court jesters? 
you know, are there places carved out in which this uh, rebellion against authority is acceptable? I love the idea of there being some kind of fool or some some kind of Harlequin character who gets license to say what's really on people's minds. Uh, you know, uh, yeah. and I did not find a lot of evidence of that. Uh, I really didn't. That's not to say that's not the case. I mean, if there's one thing that you learn, you you have these research heavy books that you do. With everything that you read, you realize how much you don't know. And yeah. and and with every new thing I learn, it opens up new regions of like, oh fuck, I'll never learn that. So I don't know if that's really the case. I think of the fool in the in the play King Lear, which is, I mean, for your listeners who don't know the play, it's a sh- very Shakespearean tragedy in which a king <laughs> gives away his tries to give away his kingdom to his three daughters. Shit ensues. He loses his <laughs> his mind, uh, screams at the rain, and, and and everyone ends up dead. And and the king. Um, Spoiler alert. Yeah, except for the worst people. Uh, except and the king dies in a very very ab, ab, abject state. Well, Austrian censors told a theater producer, uh, "You got to change the play." This is in the in the 19th century. Uh, this is like your Hollywood thing. We like it, but not the ending. You know, slap a hand, put put a happy ending on that. The king couldn't die. Why? Because it put in people's minds that the king might be infallible, or excuse me, that, that the king might be fallible. That occurred, right? And it happened over and over and over again. So, a court jester is there is there license to let the truth out or to let the hard truths out. I, I, when there's a repressive regime, I'm not seeing a, a lot of that. You know that you can't find Winnie the Pooh on the Chinese internet because someone, there was this trend going on that he looked a lot like President Xi. Uh, I mean, <laughs> of all the shit that this guy deals with during the course of his day, you know, of all the shit yeah. that he deals with, uh, we got to stop that, you know. It's amazing, amazing. Little poo. I mean, so, (laughs) no. Have there been truth tellers allowed? Uh, Yes, of course. But they generally come with, you know, a a more open society. American society. Yeah, go on, please. Yeah. I was going to mention Lenny Bruce and George Carlin as examples in American society. Yeah. And a great example, I mean, something that we can be proud of, I think, is, you know, think of that scene. At the whatever it's called, the gridiron dinner, the Hollywood circle jerk, or right. the journalistic circle jerk in Washington every year, where the the White House press corps and the government. Stephen Colbert got up during the George Bush presidency, and and George W. Bush cut him to fucking ribbons. I mean, there was nothing left of George W. Bush after that, and all he could do is smile stupidly, which he did very well. But you know, <laughs> it's a natural. That was uncomfortable. I loved it, but it was uncomfortable. But it was a, a testament to to the good things of this country because it's the idea yeah. of looking a president in the face and saying, "You know, I think you're an illiterate. I think you're stupid, and you embarrass me." Is basically what the joke said. 
Um, the right to do that, you and I grew up with that. That's the firmament. That's who we are. It's extremely recent. And it's extremely vulnerable. I mean, these are these seem like hard-baked rights, but they're, you know, if we've learned anything from Trump, I mean anything from Trump, it's this is what authority could look like. So when we're calling, you know, there's been a real shift in censorship where it used to be that right-thinking people saw the government as the bad guy and they were looking to protect their speech against the government because it was the government that had the power to really squelch speech. Now, a lot of people are looking to the government to censor. We were talking about hate speech. Take out this hate speech. Pornography is bad. Stop trans, anti-trans speech. Stop, you know, racism, sexism, all these things. I, we're looking for the government now to protect us. We're looking for rules to protect us. We're, we're telling, of all fucking people, Mark Zuckerberg... Protect me, as if this guy has our welfare in mind for a second. You know, he's a, and, and so the idea of now looking to the government to protect us when we've just had a real hard, rough-ass dose of what the government is capable of when it's in the wrong, wrong hands. I mean, one thing you've got to give George W. Bush credit for is he didn't really infringe on speech too much, the Patriot Act not, notwithstanding. Um, Whistleblowers got a bad rap. Uh under Absolutely. Obama as well, of course. Yeah, 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 very much. But the, I mean, the government is not trustworthy. <laughs> any government, yeah. any, so when we want rules, even if we want rules for the right reasons, we always have to look ahead and, and ask ourselves with every stage of this, what if Trump had this power? What if William Barr had this power? What would they, they do? So if we're looking to legislate niceness, if we're looking to legislate social cohesion, if we're looking to legislate against things that hurt us, um, you always have to look at who's got the power, who's doing the enforcement, and what are their aims. One of the arguments you make in Dangerous Ideas is that the advent of the printing press provoked uh, sort of a counter a movement of censorship laws because suddenly people had much more power to distribute seditious ideas, anti-authoritarian ideas, uh, Martin Luther being the most famous of them, I guess. Um, and you just mentioned a few minutes ago that the, the people who owned the printing presses were encouraging writers to write prohibited things because they sold better. So there's an appetite for that. From the um, you, you referred to, sorry? I said from the beginning, yeah. From the beginning. And you referred to this as a print quake. And uh, so it sort of you know, shook the foundations of society when these opinions could be spread more uh, rapidly and disseminated. Um, are we, is the internet another print quake where now everyone is a publisher and everyone's uh, anti-authoritarian uh, ideas or anti-truth ideas can be spread immediately and widely? And is that, do you think, fueling some of the, the backlash? Yes, yes, and yes. Uh, I, I agree. Yes. Um, you know, one of the things that happened with, before the printing press, 
So that's the late, late 15th century. It took a long time for ideas to circulate. You know, so that people would interact through letters or if, you know, when they would meet, it would take six months to go find, find one another. Things moved very, very slowly. And in fact, the means of production were very tightly con controlled, both by circumstance, because you simply couldn't do things, you know, couldn't print things, and also through um, con controls. Immediately, guys like Luther became pamphleteers, and they could chug out ideas very, very, very quickly. So all the real anti-printing laws, all the real censorship laws kicked in in response to the, to the printing press. The most hmm. famous being the Catholic Church's index, you know. And I mean, one thing you like to talk about sexual subjects, so so do I. One of the, you know, those were the first anti-pornography laws, you know, alongside Copernicus and the others, you know, great thinkers. There were pornographers on the first index, most famously Pietro Arantino, because the private reserves of the rich their porno collections can now be distributed to the poor. So there are class questions through that. And, 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 you know, just, and yes, the internet, I mean, no one needs me to tell them this. I mean, they, they, it, it has immediately made communication, you know, so instant, so broad, that yes, I mean this. How many people is is this recording going to go out to? You know, tens of thousands and um, billions could view it if they wanted to because it's going to be on because <laughs> it's going to be on on YouTube. That's never really yeah. really happened before. At first, yeah, the Americans who cooked it up um, saw this as what's called the technology of freedom. Like we could, that 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 with the internet with. I mean, Nicholas Kristof, in his famous formulation, said, in the future, revolutions will be fought with thugs on the one side shooting bullets and students on the other side shooting tweets. And the tweets are going to win. And we really thought, I mean, that was pretty naive, of course, you know, but uh, we thought that that would unmoor authoritarian governments, subvert them from within, the Arab Spring becoming the, the first real test of that. In fact, Clinton had a very funny comment. It was kind of stupid, but funny. You know, when someone was brought up, the Chinese government said, well, they're going to try and use the internet to control people. He said, yeah, that'll be about as easy as nailing Jello to a wall. His, he was, we were so cocky that we thought that we could undermine authoritarian governments through the internet. We actually funded it quite a bit. Well, what they learned, what the Arab governments learned, and what the Iranians learned once we use the internet to try and sub subvert Ahmadinejad is that um, this can also be a tool of social control. And so a lot of, you know, the Chinese learned to nail jello to any wall that they wanted, you know? Yeah. And, that, and they also learned that they could turn it back on us, right? Which oh, is what yes. everyone's so upset about now. Russian what we've been of doing. our elections. Yeah. yeah and exactly. I mean, and also, uh, I mean, it's terrible to say, but greed. I mean, the Chinese have the biggest market on earth and the price for American and European uh, entry into the market is to censor. And so American uh, companies are very free speechy here, but they're perfectly ready to censor 
in China. So that's where the action is. That's where the speech um, controversies are happening now. The internet was first cooked up on the American ideal of hate speech. We don't give a shit about it. Open, open, open. And now, actually, um, without really saying it, the European notions of restricting speech and restricting hate speech and restricting a lot of dissent are being brought back to us in the, in the forms of terms of service. The terms of service, which are long and complicated and as idiotic as you'd imagine and as contradictory as you'd imagine, uh, are pretty much there as a result of European pressure on internet companies to, mm. to, to regulate speech. And, um, you know, the, this is what's also so fascinating about the Internet is that the law transcends borders. And so the American first total free speech ideal is now coming back differently. And there's all these moves now in Congress to restrict, you know, to res restrict speech on the Internet. In the end, I think... Um, I think it's a very it's a fool's errand to to rely on people like Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey or the others to be the guardians of our speech, and if and it's a fool's errand to to rely on them to clean up public discourse, to make us nice, to make things good, and to keep out falseness and lies. That what they what what they'll do is the minimum they need to do to keep the regulatory wolves away, and they're going and so if they're going to face you know, the fines in Germany and elsewhere, if you fuck up, are huge. <laughs> so to get the sparrow of the of the really bad speech, they're going to bomb the city. And so what right. Facebook is doing now, are they're they're taking down hundreds of millions of dollars, excuse me, of, of pieces of content. And they and it transcends borders. So we're in a real period right now. And it's interesting a little scary of how we're going to regulate speech. Should we regulate speech according to what standards, et cetera? And, and there, there seems to be, I don't know what the case is in Europe, but in the United States, there seems to be a frenzied uh, sort of policing of speech. Like everyone's making citizens arrests, you know, <laughs> um, the, what do you, you know, the me too. Well, the Me Too movement, I mean, you know, for example, uh, in many workplaces, I guess it's considered um, uh, inappropriate to tell a woman that she looks good today. You know, oh, you um, don't want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I worked in law firms. I mean, They're neutered spaces and, and, and that's how people feel safer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I, it doesn't is. make me feel safe. I'll tell you. Yeah, I'm yeah. just waiting to say the wrong thing. Um, but I, I'm just wondering, like, the, there are certain components of the situation in the United States right now. And I'm wondering if from your per, your much more informed perspective than mine, are they unique or are these reflections of things that have been seen uh, in the past? For example, the word the. the the n-word okay we've got a word i say n-word you know what i'm referring to exactly everyone knows what i'm referring to and yet because we're adding this one extra layer 
somehow we're all pretending that it's not offensive. And people with dark skin, even if they're not American, uh, African Americans, even if they're from Zimbabwe or they're from Jamaica, Tamil Nadu, yeah, yeah, yeah. they can say the actual word. Uh, if they're rappers, they can use the word repeatedly. Uh, <laughs> repeatedly, yeah. and yet, so so. I guess what I'm getting at is, is this a unique situation where some subpopulations use a word very frequently and and very with a lot of friendly intent in most cases, and yet other parts of the same population, it's absolutely forbidden. You just touched on a number of things, which is the electricity, the radioactivity of certain words and images, um, and on the sort of private public thing. And mm. so let's just try and unpack that a little bit. The N-word, there is no legal prohibition against using a word that is extremely harmful to people. You know, the the... The key thing is there was a case in Minneapolis in which there was a ordinance against cross burning. Seems pretty reasonable to me. Cross burning hurts people, um, except for it was thrown out by the Supreme Court by saying, well, look, that's just an idea. You know, speech, yes, it's reprehensible, but let's not throw the First Amendment on the fire too. I think the N word is like what I was talking about a few minutes ago with the swastika in Germany. Uh, I guess America's worst shame is its tradition of hideous racism and and the suppression of African Americans and Germany's would clearly be the you know national socialism and so the to the to the German government they'll outlaw it they'll say you can't even use it as an eye catching device you can't put it on a T-shirt you can't have earrings. America makes a private public distinction. You can say that word. I mean, you might get your ass kicked. You probably will get your ass kicked if you're in, you know, if you're around people who are going to hear it. You can say the word in public. In private, if you're at this workplace, you're going to lose your job. Yeah. You're going to lose your job. So we have a tradition here in the United States which doesn't exist elsewhere which is bizarre and it's schizophrenic, is that the private sector can regulate speech till the cows come, come home, okay? So think about a private school or a cafe or, for that matter, Facebook or Twitter. Twitter is a private space which was able to get rid of Trump. Enough already with you. They should have done it a year and a half ago, but, you know, enough. We're done. And... Twitter had the right to do that. In other places, they don't make that, that hard distinction between public and private. And so we're fighting that because, you know, there, the, I, I brought up Charlottesville. There was a guy with a tiki torch marked in, who marched in Charlottesville, as he is allowed to do, to be this hateful prick, white supremacist prick with a tiki torch saying these horrible things. First Amendment says... Good for you. Do it again. He went back to the hot dog stand where he worked in Berkeley 
and he didn't have a job anymore. And that was absolutely, for me, the perfect expression of how this country operates is like you're able to Mm. really hurt people. I'm not saying that it's not hurtful. I believe, actually, racist speech should be protected. I, I can't trust the government to regulate it. I think the solution would end up being worse than the problem. But at the same time, you know, Google, for the great free speech organization that they build themselves to be, one of their people wrote an internal memo saying women weren't quite very good at engineering. Remember that? Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. That was about a year and a half ago. Uh, 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 you know, out of a job. Yeah. Although what he said is ostensibly true. And that, that's where it, it, it gets interesting. That's a dispute. Uh, yeah. You know, I just read this article the other day and I, I did a, a rant about it and I, I haven't decided whether I'm going to post it or not because it's so inflammatory. Um, but it's an article in The Guardian that a black, uh, a black man wrote and his argument, it was about March Madness and how uh, about you know, we're watching all the, yeah, about the mm-hmm. basketball tournament and you know, the vast majority of the players on the best teams are black. And his argument was like, oh, here we go again. People are going to start talking about the inherent physicality of black people that gives them an advantage. And that's why you see so many elite athletes who are black. But his argument, a very muddled argument, but his argument was, no, the reason so many elite athletes are black is because they have no other economic opportunities. So there, there's a desperation in the black community article, to yeah. be a great athlete. Did you see it? Yeah. Well, my reaction to that was sort of what you were saying earlier, where we don't want to hear anything that makes us uncomfortable. And f- from my perspective, this guy was arguing from a, an emotional conclusion, arguing backwards. He doesn't. He was saying, want "This is how be- I want it to be." And therefore, anyone who believes anything different is an idiot. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, dude, desperation is not what makes the hundred fastest sprinters in the world black, right? <laughs> That's not mm-hmm. about lack of economic opportunity. Most of them aren't even from the United States, right? So, like, there, there's so many. I don't, I don't know if you remember, but he starts the article talking about how. He was a kid in a multiracial school, but the black kids always seemed to be winning at the sports. And it's like, dude, you were seven years old. This wasn't a reaction to cultural oppression. You were kids that, you know, by by definition, you've just invalidated your own argument. But but honestly, I'm a little worried about putting it online because it's such an explosive topic. (laughs) It's an explosive topic. And you don't want to be understood. I mean. I don't think you're implying or saying that there is some inherent physical difference between African-Americans and white people that that makes. Yes, I am. Okay. Yes, I am. Uh, And and I don't think that's a racist thing to say. I think that's Mm -hmm. factual. Uh, African-American women, uh, their their tumors in breast cancer grow much faster. Mm -hmm. African-American men are much more likely to have prostate cancer than and aggressive forms of prostate cancer than white men. Uh, there are all sorts of diseases that uh, cluster racially. That's simply a fact. That's not racist. That's not saying one race is any better than any other. It's simply saying there are differences. 
And in fact, I, I looked online a little bit and I found a study conducted at, uh, by researchers at Howard University, which is a predominantly black school, and Duke, uh, trying to explain why the fastest runners in the world are black. And what they found was that people with North African, West African heritage tend to have longer limbs and smaller torsos, and therefore their center of gravity is higher. So their feet are traveling faster when they hit the ground. Stands they did this whole psychobiometric study. That's not racism, right? See, I think the problem is that we take it to the next level and we say, if you say there's any physical distinction between the races, you're a racist. That's yeah, not true. Yeah, that's a leap. You know, that, and you know what's, what's interesting to me hearing this, and this is a legit discussion, is, you know, my orientation is, okay, how do we govern this conversation? Okay, so what you're talking about is a troll army <laughs> or, or, you know, some kind of mob coming at you, misconstruing what you're saying, accusing right. you of something. Someone starts doxing you and revealing where you are. And all of a sudden, you're really scared. That's the life of journalists uh, pretty much every fucking day. There was, a yeah. there was an amazing article about uh, Tucker Carlson the other day who, you know, when he calls, just like Trump, when they would call out journalists or call out people, uh, their lives get really, really complicated. So that's a form of censorship. John, John Stuart Mill himself was talking about, you know, the worst censorship is from our peers. <laughs> it's not even from the, you know, from the government. We have a situation now where I think Americans are, by and large, and on all sides of the spectrum, really touchy. <laughs> okay, really, really, really touchy. I can't tell you why, but we're sort of in this heightened, maybe we've all been through a year of, Four years of Trump, a year of this fucking pan pandemic, which has driven us all slightly batty. So we have American law, which says, which is almost absolutist, okay, free speech, which is virtually absolutist against people's sensibilities. And so we were talking about the private-public partnerships or the private-public distinction. Well, the platforms where most speech is happening are private. So... No one needs to give a, give a reason. Zuckerberg mm. doesn't need to tell you why he takes you off. He might, might lot like people who are named Christopher. <laughs> he might not like bald white guys and say, you know what? Every bald white guy, you're, that's the right we have. So we have this private control of the public forum. And what we're demanding that the platforms do now is to impose restrictions on speech that American law doesn't allow. Mm. So we're saying we want an end run around Ameri around the American experiment. In the end, I'm not quite so ready. All right, everything that came out of Trump's mouth for four fucking years drove me insane. Okay, he, he lied, he was hateful, it was horrible, and a big piece of me wanted to just shut him up. Okay, just like you, yeah. I'm sure. Just shut him up. Mm. Okay. At the same time, I live in a country where guys like him can open their mouths, and we made the mistake of electing a guy like this guy. So he had this, you know, forum. We have to really examine: are the virtues of allowing speech 
even though it hurts, worth it? Or are we willing to sort of chuck all that we've achieved in the last 80, 90 years since? Um, yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, since, it's, it's that profound. It's that profound. We're, and we're, it's happening right we're, now. <laughs> we're privatizing the public square. Yes, we're privatizing the public square. And that means that arbitrary decisions can be made uh, against speech. And so over inclusiveness. So there's all these bills, there's dozens and dozens and dozens of bills in Congress. There's no reason to go into the details of them, but most of them have to do with limiting speech online and making it super costly for the platforms and for those that run the platforms and their shareholders to let certain speech happen on online. The conservatives want this, the liberals want that. Yeah. Do yeah, we I, want I th that? You know, can you keep lies off the internet? Can you really do that without burying a lot of truth with it? I mean, I don't know. There are fake news. You read one of my recent articles. There are fake news laws all over the world. Okay, after 2016. And most of them are being used to squelch dissent. Most of them are being used by companies like Egypt to stop coronavirus stories, etc. There are anti-hate speech laws. And you know what? It sounds good. Hate speech hurts. But they're being used to quell dissent. Again, you got to go back to who's making the decisions, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's. I mean, you started off by, by asking if we want uh, to restrict... Um, speech that does not align with truth. And then you, you, of course, got to the point of, you know, who gets to choose what's truth. Um, we haven't really talked about speech that promotes, and I hate this phrase, conspiracy theories, because some conspiracy theories are fucking true. And so, you know, to say anything that suggests <laughs> I guess they're not conspiracy, theories, then. I guess they're, con you know, they're <laughs> well, conspiracies. Well, some theories are yeah, true, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, but it, but it is interesting. I, I mean, one of the recent struggles in yellow, my life, excuse me, such as like yellow cake, uranium getting passed by the Iraqis, such as right. you which, know, uh, which was yeah. just horseshit from the word go. And the we Gulf have a, of Tonkin. The Gulf of Tonkin. I mean, it goes on, goes on. Remember the main. So yeah. conspiracy theories are not all anti-Antifa shit. They're, they're, they come right. from the government itself. Right. So what do we do with that when there are people saying, you know, masks don't work. Mm. Uh, this is all a Chinese uh, creation, intentional. Uh, you know, it's like... Trying to sort that stuff out is so difficult. And, you know, when the marketplace of ideas is flooded with nonsense um, and there's no controlling authority, like when there were publishers, the publishers had some responsibility for what they were publishing. But now when everyone's a publisher and there's no controlling authority, there's no filtration, there's no... Um, structure of of uh, verification are we losing a grip on reality is there any way to resist this i feel like a tide's coming in and i'm like i got my arms wrapped around a a tree trunk and <laughs> and uh you know tsunami is rolling in i i don't i feel like this is ir uh, impossible to resist you know, that, 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 I think, is the question. I mean, my wife, who's pretty much the smartest person I know, um, 
and is a very humane, thoughtful person, has been saying, she only you're made writing one this, mistake. Yeah, she said, you're, you're <laughs> writing this fucking book on free speech. Why isn't, you know, fake news out, outlawed? Can't you do something about that? I'm like, oh, God, I don't know. I mean, first off, <laughs> we didn't invent fake news, okay? I mean, people used to believe, we were talking about this, that African-Americans had a different skull structure that made them inferior. You know, people believe that Jews were necessarily, you know, per- perverts. People believed that yellow cake, you know, that that Iraq was behind 9-11. We've we've been awash in bullshit and in lies for a very, very long time. The difference. Mm. I mean, we can just go on. I mean, I remember being told when I was 12 years old by my teacher that the that someone in this room, their parents are communists that are working just to subvert the whole country. And, and I was in suburban Chicago and, and, and like we believed, do you remember that when we were kids, the communists? I mean, the, we believed all kinds of really crazy shit. So that hasn't stopped. The, the difference is the amplification. And that's right. you holding on to your tree trunk saying, I used to be able to resist some of the stuff, but I don't think I can hold on. You know, uh, there's, there's not only a wave coming, but there's an old piece of furniture with the wave that's going to knock, knock me out and I won't be able to think anymore. I, I don't think that you can legislate truth. I mm. really don't. There are a lot of people calling. I mean, I've been... St- <laughs> You can imagine paying a lot of attention to this. And there's, I've got notes 10 pages long of all the solutions people have been proposing. I've been keeping kind of a tally. Half of them involve some board, some czar, some group of elders to decide what's true or not. That makes me want to jump off a fucking cliff. I mean, because who appoints that board? What is their, you know, what is their, what is their agenda? What we can do, I think, and, and probably not probably, possibly get it through the courts because the First Amendment really restricts restrictions on speech. It really restricts restrictions on speech is get to the amplification, okay? Is when you and I are on the internet and when we walk around with our phones, every fucking thing we do think, say, is getting recorded. We're getting profiles made of us and then we're getting marketed to. The best solution I've seen is probably the simplest, and it's probably the has the best shot legally in court, which is to bar the use of our personal data online for use in advertising and marketing. The the way that our news feed comes up, the what we see on the internet, how it's fed, how the shit comes to us is all based on people trying to sell to us. And, and, and we, you know, when we clicked, I agree when 10 years ago, when we signed up for Facebook or 15 years ago, we basically said, my life is yours, whatever you want. You know, Facebook knows that women are pregnant before they tell anybody, you know, they, 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 and so it, the ecosystem is built on micro targeting of ads, micro targeting of content. And if we could, pass privacy legislation to really restrict that, the incentive to drive lies, to drive bad things would go away. Why? Because engagement, that's the only thing the platforms want, is for you to stay on. 
you might be suffering when you're staying on. You might be in a state of outrage when you're staying on, but you're but you're on. As long as you're on, the ads are coming to you. The use of hate speech and bullshit and inflammatory stuff is just it's promoted to keep you online so you'll get marketed to. And so the best solution that I could see, it's not a solution, the best way to chip at disinformation is to hit the platforms where they fucking breathe. I mean, all this business about content moderation is trimming around the edges. The core is their business model. And, you know, there is enough precedent in American law that we can regulate the way businesses do business without Mm. necessarily calling it speech. That's really what I think. So it's kind of a roundabout way of answering your question. If we had a law that says from now on, this board of elders says we're going to look at everything online and decide what's true, what's not, and we're going to get rid of it. I'd love that. Okay. Cause this anti-vax shit is terrible and all the crazy stuff pr- primarily coming out of the right is terrible. And I wish I could just erase it, but it's not going to work. It just won't happen. Or if it does happen, it'll happen horribly. Yeah. We need you know, to break prob- up Facebook into 50 different pieces, break up Google into 10 different pieces, stop their market power and hit them uh, and hit the model that promotes this shit. Yeah. I'd love to have been a fly on the wall in the meetings where the, uh, the board and the directors of Google decided to drop the motto. Don't be evil. Yeah. Did they drop that model? So what is it now? Just become evil. (laughs) (laughs) Join us in evil. (laughs) Evil pays. I don't know. But I mean, I remember that was their motto and then it was gone. And like, wow, that must have been an awkward meeting. Yeah. You know, I don't really think. uh, Look, Zuckerberg is this punk coder that somehow began, grew up to control most of the discourse in the world. I don't think these are necessarily bad. I don't think they're evil. Okay. I think they like money. And I think they've got shareholders to answer to, and they've done a brilliant job of figuring out how to make a, a lot of money. And, and they've sucked all the ad revenue out of newspapers, et cetera. I don't think they're necessarily bad people. I think they're in over their heads when it comes to speech and discourse. And they just want to make products that sell and that keep us in, in, engaged. And all this free speech stuff, is it's a bother and it's like a mosquito bite. You know, there was something that just came down the other day that I thought was so interesting. Um, I don't know this rapper. I think his name is YG. And he turned out a song called Meet the Flockers. And there was a video from it. And there's a lot, a lot of anti-Asian stuff in this video. And it was on YouTube. And so we're in a particularly sensitive point now, given the virus, with a lot of violence against Asians. So the staff of YouTube, which is Google, the, the staff of YouTube made a big stink. We hate this video. We should take this down. This is hate speech. It went up to the board or whatever the higher-ups are in Google, and they said, no, we're going to keep it up. We don't think it's bad. We, we think it's bad, but artistic expression gets more room, so it gets subtle. Mm. And so it's up, and there's a revolt or a mini-revolt going on in Google, and it went through my mind as like, wait, is this how artistic expression is now getting evaluated in the United States? That something is up, an employee revolt, 
a, a discussion inside a private company, no accountability. This piece of art can go up or go down depending on what these guys at Google ate that morning or how long, how loud the protest is from the rank and file. Is that the kind of system that we really want? This is the system that we have. So do you think that there should be public, uh, you know, to bring the public square back into the public, mm -hmm. should there be publicly owned platforms? Similar, or should the government take over Twitter or Facebook? Well, uh, no, because then the government would be running Twitter and Facebook. And I've just got to look back six months at who the government was. And, and, so and, how, and how I we... just want to jump through a fucking window thinking about that. Yeah. yeah. So how, how do we then protect the, the sort of um, the openness, right? Either we're going to have a board of, of people at Google making these decisions or we're going to have the Supreme Court making the decisions. I don't have an answer for that, Chris. I really don't. But I, the best I can I love think, you, Eric. I got to tell you I the love, truth, man. I love people who admit when they don't have an answer. That is one of my favorite qualities in people, I got to say. I mean, we're all struggling. You know, the fool thinks he's wise. You know, the wise man knows he's an idiot. They, 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 yeah. the, 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 this is... Someone gave a quote the other day, and I thought it was brilliant, that we somehow think that the chaos of human existence and the chaos of our thoughts and the chaos of our relations can somehow be brought in line through rules of you know content moderation online it's a fallacy life is full of conflict and pain and hurt and bad stuff and so i think you know i can't tell you how we can keep things as open as possible while keeping out it's a big brother while while keeping out an authoritarian um regime that will inevitably just look to take care of itself. Uh, the best that I could tell you is that, you know, we have had a lot of rapacious companies in the past and we've managed to quell a lot of the worst aspects of them. I mean, through workplace safety laws, through disclosure laws on finance, through a hundred ways of regulating business in a way so that it does the minimum harm that it can. We fucked it up a thousand times. We'll continue to fuck it up. But, you know, I, I now know that if I buy a house, that whoever built this house has had to go through regulations to build the house in a reasonably safe way and not use lead paint and all these other things. Well, let's try and clean some of the lead paint out of the online ecosystem through their business model, through trying to clean up or trying to get rid of some of the worst aspects of it. Would that make these companies less profitable? Yeah. Would they have to maybe go through a subscription model of some kind or you'll pay for some kind of prime or something because they can't hawk an ad at you, you know, every possible second? Yeah. Will that hurt? Yeah. But it's a lot better, I think, to get to the method of doing business than trying to govern the content itself. That's just my thought. But honestly, in this context, I, I am no more wise than anyone else. Believe well, I think, 
<laughs> I think you're right, though, and and it leads me to a very self-serving conclusion, which is that one of the ways that people can um, encourage a free exchange of ideas is to support uh, podcasts that they enjoy directly, you know, where there's no corporate control uh, mm. by books like yours that question these power structures. Uh, I do think that it's a much more atomized world now. You know, we we've gone from three news net news programs, NBC, ABC or CBS mm. to, you know, who knows how many uh, sources of information now. Mm. So people have to make their own decisions and support the sources of information that they find to be most reliable and, uh, and helpful. And I guess that's how it's got to sort itself out. It's never going to sort itself out. We're just going to be, <laughs> we're going to be constantly, this is the, it's the thrill of existence. And it's the, it's <laughs> why existence, why life hurts sometimes. Yeah. We're just going at it. And and so we've had a situation now where it's like, be careful what you wish for. You know, we've got an absolutist First Amendment along with hyper communication. Well, OK, it's created a lot of a lot of shit. But, you know, we're going to get to it uh, piece by piece. So, yeah. You know. Eric, I love talking to you, man. I yeah. love the way wow. you think. Great I really discussion. enjoy it. Uh, Dangerous Ideas, A Brief History of Censorship in the West from the Ancients to Fake News. I blurbed it. I'm proud to be yeah. among the blurbers. There's a prominent group of blurbers you got there. Yeah, you you were the first and you were definitely the funniest. What would you say? Like, read, <laughs> read this before it's banned or something like that, which yeah. I love. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I don't do a lot of blurbs, man. It's, yeah, it's hard. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah it's, I know. Uh, I get I get emails from people I don't know, and I'm like, "Yeah, your book seems really cool, but I've got 500 things in front of me, and uh, you know." Yeah, and you know, you have to at least take the time to to know whether you like the book. I mean, yeah, there's no way to read the whole book every time, but at least read a few chapters, and that takes an afternoon. You know, it's yeah. it's hard. This was good. Um, Eric's Eric's previous books are also fantastic and and more up my alley in terms of sexuality. The Boundaries of Desire, A Century of Bad Laws, Good Sex, and Changing Identities. I'll tell you, A Century of Good Sex, that's a lot to, to ask for. <laughs> I'll take 15 minutes, yeah. <laughs> and uh, Sex and Punishment, also a fantastic book. Um yeah. Hey, thanks for doing this, man. Yeah. Uh, I really appreciate it. So the book is out uh, May 4th. Is that right? Yeah, but you can pre-order now. That's what the public Pre-order it. Okay. So you want me to release this before May 4th and we'll just tell everybody to pre-order it if possible? Yeah, maybe if, maybe four or five days before. It'd be cool. Okay. So this is coming out early May. We recorded it on April 16th. So anything that's happened in the last two weeks and you're wondering why we didn't mention it, that's why. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> We're coming to you from the past. Yeah. <laughs> Great job. All right, man. brother. Thank you so much for doing this. Really enjoyed it. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Eric Berkowitz. Um, the book is called Dangerous Ideas. It is available for pre-order if you're listening to this the day it came out. 
<clears throat> or it is available at bookstores if you're listening to this a couple of days later. May 4th, I think he said, was the release date. Uh, so please support Eric if you can afford it. And uh, this is the kind of book that you're interested in. He's a really good writer and a really good dude. I'm going to leave it at that. And uh, thank you again for your attention. And um, I will be back with you before you know it. In the meantime, here's my mom and the lovely Carsey Blanton. Okay, Mom, uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay, in our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of T-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. (laughs) She didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies, or koozies, or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death design. They're all civilized That's to right. death. We have stickers and car decals, right? Yes. Okay, there you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say to the ground.